So normally I don't speak two weeks in a row at 9.30, so you guys are like, wow. Uh, oh, is it? Thanks. Uh, you're like, wow. So we've been going through a uh, little just mini-series on how to use some of the Bible studies and tools and resources we have as a church to help every person grow. And we're not going to talk about that this morning. Uh, and Ali's like, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. I love it. Um, so uh, number one, because uh, that's just like a super practical, here's something thrown out to you guys to how to use uh, the tools we have as a church. Uh, and I usually, usually give the caveat that like, this is not a sermon. Uh, well, this is a sermon this time. <laughs> thought you guys were ready for it. Um, so this morning, we're going to actually go through Psalm 24, but let's pray, and then we'll really get started. Uh, so Father, we come to you this morning um, on your day, Lord, as a day of rest, uh, yet we see that there's tons of work that needs to be done, uh, but we come to rest in you, Lord, uh, to commune with your saints, to confess our sins, to hear your word, uh, to be filled with your spirit, to worship with you, uh, to eat with one another. Uh, and to commune with you, Father. Pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so something I think that uh, uh, is characterized by Western Christianity that's been exported is moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, a guy named, I think it was Tony Horton, um, kind of quoted that as... Uh, this idea in Christianity that seems to keep getting watered down where it's more about morals and doing the right thing, uh, that God is kind of distant, he's not very close, um, and it's more like to make you feel good in like a therapeutic sense. And so there's tons and tons of things that go into uh, oh, why that might be so. Um, but anyways, one thing I think that uh, any church gets in a danger of is we tend to preach um, kind of systematically, like in a systematic theology sense, or topically. And so we might think that uh, we as a church struggle with prayer, or we want to start a prayer movement. And so we talk about prayer, right? Those are good biblical things to talk about. Those are good desires um, and things we ought to do. But when we start uh, and when we continue to preach topically, week after week, year after year, after decades, I think we start to tend to drift into just moralism of like, if we took the idea of prayer and said, well, we need to pray more. Well, that's true. Uh, and we may or may not do a good job of uh, exegeting scriptures biblically of why we ought to pray and, and do a topical study. But in the back of everyone's mind, I think what's going on is we just need to try and pray harder and pray more. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. So I th I'm just saying that because um, what we're doing at the 1030 with the Roman series that John Gray is going through is, is uh, an exegesis of scripture or a biblical theology. We're going to look at one book and we're going to dissect it and we're going to go through it. And we're going to see the theologies and the practicals and, and, and everything that goes through this one book. Um, we don't regularly, we have scripture readings every week, but we aren't necessarily, necessarily preaching on those every week. And so um, I just want to go through Psalm 24. You know, in church history, throughout Jewish culture and throughout 
Um, you know, the last 2,000 years, the church has tended to, to drift towards or look at uh, and exalt some psalms higher than the other, uh, right? There's 150 psalms. Um, and so if you were to read all 150, you would certainly uh, find a few that stuck out to you in particular. Um, but throughout history, uh, there's been, like Psalm 1 is a kind of the cornerstone of the psalms. Um, Psalm 1 and 2 are ones that stick out, Psalm 23 and 24. Uh, a lot of the, those are psalms of David. Psalm 119 obviously sticks out. It's the longest psalm in the book. That's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about the, the Word of God, the law of God. Um, <clears throat> psalm 139 is another one. Um, psalm, I think it's Psalm 1. Oh, I've got a Bible right here. Uh, psalm 117, I think it is, sticks out to me just because it's the shortest psalm in the book. It's like two lines. It's two verses. That's a good one. Um, but we actually see this uh, before the New Testament in the early, um, or in the, the, uh, the uh, days of Israel and Judaism, where there's just, it just seems to be with the people of God, certain psalms stick out, right? Everybody's heard of Psalm 23, right? Is there a reason why that one is more important than Psalm uh, 49? I have no idea what Psalm 49 is about. I have no idea what it says. I'd have to read it. Does anybody know what Psalm 49 is about? No hands, no hands. Remember, this is a, we talk back to each other here uh, in the best sense. What is Psalm 23 about? What's the first line? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Everybody knows that one. And so we're not going to look at why we drift to certain Psalms. We're just going to, we're just saying that uh, there are certain psalms throughout cultures and, and throughout the history of the people of God that stand out. And Psalm 24 is one of my favorites, and it's one uh, that's quoted in the New Testament um, in uh, at least one place directly. Um, but we're just going to go through this line by line. And so this is a psalm of David, right? And so when you know a little bit more about David, uh, you can understand the psalm a little bit more. Um, especially within context of Psalm 23, the one right before it. And so we don't know when the psalm was written. Uh, it doesn't give us an indication like in Psalm 50 uh, or 51, it does. And so uh, just really briefly, some of the things that happened that uh, historically with David that might have been a clue of when these were written. Uh, a lot of Jewish historians think that Psalm 24 might have been written when the ark was brought, brought from the house of Obed-Edom. Uh, into Jerusalem when the, uh, remember the ark carrying the presence of God, the, the tablets, um, the staff, manna, all these things uh, representing God's presence, his holy place, was being brought from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem uh, and a great worship session uh, came out. And then there's another more Jewish thought that uh, would be when David uh, found out the place of where the the sanctuary or uh, the temple was to be built right on the threshing floor. And so there's no really facts behind that. You can look at some of the uh, lines in here and kind of figure out why some people have called or thought that. Uh, But let's open up to Psalm 24. And so it starts with the Lord, I'm sorry, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so this is directly quoted in 1 Corinthians 10.26. 
And so uh, when we're reading psalms, we're reading psalms, we're reading things that the people of God would sing for various purposes, for not just study theologically, but uh, these are marching orders. This is when we're worshiping, uh, we're preparing for battle, we're preparing um, for, for what's ahead of us, we're, uh, we're glorifying God. And so the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so everything uh, asserted is that God is sovereign over everything. The earth, the plants, the rain, the car accidents, the speeding tickets, uh, the bad parents, the good parents, the Lord is sovereign, right? He's in control of everything. And so he does with it what he pleases, right? And so um, we see in this verse and the rest of it, the world and those who dwell in, that God has possession of everything. And so... uh, we don't need to turn that now, but you can read in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, where he quotes directly. Um, so briefly, a lot of times in the Psalms, or we see, see things in the Old Testament that are quoted or asserted, and then we think, oh, how are we supposed to think about this? And then a lot of the New Testament writers are like, well, let me just tell you, and I'll explain it. Um, and so this is one of the easy ones, because Paul tells us directly that it's supposed to result in thanksgiving. And Paul doesn't limit that uh, to just the blessings or anything good. He says that everything, whether we eat or whether we drink, we do everything to the glory of God, right? It's because we have this idea in Scripture and this assertion that the Lord controls everything. He's in charge. Everything comes from him. Um, I was just meeting with uh, a, a gentleman last week who was wanting to do a little bit more with apologetics, and he was... Uh, asking me questions that somebody had asked him, and how do I answer them? And it's like, well, uh, you know, his um, atheist relative asked him, well, if someone gets healed of a, a disease by a doctor, do we, are we supposed to thank the doctor or are we supposed to thank God? I'm like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, thank them both, right? Uh, that's not like a mental conundrum, <clears throat> right? Because everything we have is from God. Uh, you know, the uh, New Testament puts out that God calls it to reign on the just and the unjust. Everything is from him. He is sovereignly over everything. He's not in a, in a deistic way where he's hovering over like a time capsule or something that he put into place and he's going to come back and check on it, right? Uh, the fullness of everything that goes on in the earth. <clears throat> and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians that that's supposed to result in thanksgiving. We're supposed to be continually thanking God for everything, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what do we do when we, uh, what is the common evangelical, uh, what did your parents make you do when you sat down uh, for dinner? You prayed. What did you pray? Thanks for the food, right? Uh, that's a common thing we've built into culture. Um, or at least in like an evangelical culture. But this is why. We thank God uh, because uh, Noel and I are blessed to have a garden that we inherited when we bought a house from a Turkish couple that has tons of fruits and vegetables, and we just get to pick them. Uh, and I planted uh, a bunch of tomatoes and a bunch of peppers, and uh, VJ was over at the house the other day, and I gave him some habaneros because they're too spicy for me. So if anybody wants habaneros got plenty. Uh, 
But I didn't make them grow. I didn't, I picked them, but I didn't cause them to grow. Uh, I didn't make the green beans grow. Uh, I did cook them, but I didn't make them grow. I didn't cause the rain. I didn't cause soil to be full of nutrients. I didn't cause any of these things, right? And so we're supposed to actually be continually reminded and thinking about these things so that it would well up in our hearts with thanksgiving, right? Um, Paul uses it on both sides of the argument. He says, whether you uh, feel a conscience that you should eat meat sacrificed in the market, or if you feel a conscience that you should not eat meat sacrificed in the market, it doesn't matter. Uh, He says you can, but he says don't harm the person or don't offend the person that doesn't eat, uh, but that both are supposed to result in thanksgiving, right? We're supposed to be, this theology is supposed to lead us towards worship. Um, and so the second part of that is the world and those who dwell therein. So this means all the people, right? And we should think as such. Uh, when you think of any relationship you have, your professor, your husband, your wife, your children, they're not really yours. They are the Lord's. Whether they're rational or irrational, whether they're regenerate or unregenerate, whoever they are, whether they live halfway across the world uh, and you have some kind of relationship with them or you don't know them, it doesn't matter. The Lord owns all the people. And when we have a theology and we think about that, uh, this is where we start stepping away from like the moralistic of you know, a works-based religion of uh, we c- certainly do, and we'll get to towards the last couple of verses, uh, a responsibility from God towards people, but they're not ultimately ours. Uh, I've got two daughters, and I might think that because they live in my house, they have to uh, do certain things for me because I own them. That's probably not a healthy way of thinking, uh, it's probably not a very fatherly way of thinking. Um, uh, or that could go into, like, they have to rub my feet because they're my children. And I worked hard today. Uh, one of those statements might be true. Uh, they're my children. Um, but, right, uh, that's not the way it works. The Lord's calling us to see in this psalm that everyone belongs to him. We're just stewards of what he has. And that's all we are. Right? Um, and so on to verse two, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon uh, the rivers. So we have this thing built in our human nature that we think because we make something or we create something, it's ours. Uh, we have that from God, right? Uh, because God, he's saying because he owns the whole earth, he owns all the people because he created them. He established them. And so there's a certain thing built into our hearts, into our minds, that we think because we made something, we have a right to it, right? So um, if you think otherwise, you probably wouldn't go to a beach with your kids uh, or your friends or something and build a sandcastle, and you don't own the sand. That's not your sand. Um, It is the city's sand most probably. Uh, The city owns it, and we'll get into that at another time. But uh, you don't go to the beach and build a sandcastle, and if someone comes and, like, smashes it down, you say, well, they had just a right to it as me, and that was their, that could have been their sandcastle, because now it's their sand. Uh, 
No, you might be a little upset, or if there's kids playing, the other kids might be a little upset uh, because they built something. They understand that because I created something, I own it, right? And that's what the Lord is saying, that because he is the creator of everything, he has rights to everything. And uh, a lot of times in Western Christianity, we think in this physical sense of the world, the, of the world that uh, it says that he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So we could think uh, physically and in an evidential way that in some type that the land is really founded upon the seas, that it's we're a world in water. But rarely does the word of God and does the Lord ever just point to trying to give us evidences to uh, use in an argument against 21st century atheists, right? Uh, or, or skepticists or whatever. God's not invested uh, with just giving us physical uh, and metaphysical arguments. What I think he's saying is, because he's founded, you've got two different Hebrew words for, for earth in verse one and world. And the earth refers to all of the physical objects, the, the produce, the trees, the dirt, and the world is a Hebrew word that refers to societies, to people, to nations, to people groups. And so you see this parallel in verse 2 that he's founded upon the seas and the rivers and established it. And so what the Lord is saying is surely he has created the entire universe and the physical world that we lived in. But he's also founded these societies, right? He's also founded people, he's people groups. Um, I don't remember what year... Dayton was established, but I know it's on April 1st because it's like an April Fool's joke uh, that I was going to use at some point. Uh, 90% of my thought is like, how can I use this as like a joke or a pun in some way? Um, but I, I think it was like an 18 something. Uh, 18 something. Uh, and so uh, the people who settled in Dayton traveled up from Cincinnati and followed the rivers and established Dayton. And every city and every nation is established around water. You need waterways for commerce. You need it for trade. You need it for business. You need water to live. Um, and so he's not saying in just the most physical sense that the Lord has created the earth and he made rivers. Yes, that's true. But he, the, the word of God is saying that he's actually founded cities and they're intrinsically created and established through these river systems because that's where people set up societies, right? Um, and so he, he's saying that he's establishing those nations, he's establishing those people groups, and he's in, in control of that, right? Um, he causes nations to rise, he causes nations to fall. And uh, he, he's the one that ultimately uh, elects a president. If you, don't like, if you don't like your president, take it up with God. Uh, uh, or if you do like your president, take it up with God. Um, and, right, because the Bible makes a claim, and the Word of God is, is making a claim that he will establish rulers, he will establish nations, he will establish people groups as he pleases. He's sovereign. He's ultimately in control. Um, surely, and then we just have a stewardship. And so all of that is saying, all of this of what we're supposed to think about and understand in these first two verses, leads us to verse 3. So with all that, like God's sovereignty and his control and um, his, his moving in history, 
Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in this holy place? You're supposed to stop for a second and think, yeah, like, who is supposed to, like, who could actually come near to such a great God who established societies, who moves history, who created everything, who, who owns all the people groups, who owns all the earth, right? Um, we, uh, we understand this as a foreshadowing um, of the church, right, of the, the people of God. Um, we're going to jump ahead to, I guess it would be verse... Six, where it talks about the, the God of Jacob. And so, um, what's Jacob's second name? Israel. Israel. Very good. What does Israel mean? We got a lot of... Uh, uh, good question. Uh, it's Israel who wrestled with God. Uh, somebody can look it up. Um, the struggle with God, it's, it's Israel, it's Jacob who wrestled with God and prevailed. He was the one who wrestled with God all night and prevailed. And so this is a foreshadowing of the people of God. He's saying, who shall ascend? Who's going to get close to this God? Who could even come close? Well, there are people who can come close, right? Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, we might as well turn there. I might have it. I have it quoted. Uh, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly or the congregation of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better, uh, a better word than the blood of Abel. So this psalm is foreshadowing those, that there's these people of God. There is people who draw close to God. Um, and it's going to give a description of the church in the next three lines. Um, but you're supposed to ask, like, if, if this is the Lord of the universe who created everything, who's going to even, who's worthy to come close? And the next three verses give us an indication. Uh, he who has a clean heart and pure hands, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Um, and so this is supposed to be a holy people. If you were to just look at that, and, and just like a, without having any understanding of maybe even God's righteousness uh, in a biblical sense, but you could say, whoever has a clean hands and a pure heart, uh, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Like, who's got a pure heart? Who's got, like, raise your hand if you've got a pure heart in here this morning. Okay, I don't see any hands. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who doesn't lift up their soul to what is false? Has everyone ever, every time, uh, ever in their whole life, or even this morning, uh, only been focused on truth, reality, glorifying God, seeking him and his desires? Ah, whoa, we got another. We're not doing too good. Uh, and does not swear deceitfully. Anybody uh, just this morning spoke nothing but the truth, the whole truth? So help you, God. Uh, <laughs> The, only, the best way to do that is just to keep your mouth shut. Uh, you can't be held accountable for what you don't say. But, so uh, without getting into everything about what that means, but the God, God's people is called to be a different people, a holy people, right? It's, it doesn't say who can ascend the hill of the Lord, those people who offer sacrifices and go to temple and do the rituals uh, and pay their tithe and, uh, and recite some chants right? The people of God are supposed to actually be holy. 
there's actually supposed to be power. These are real things, right? Um, uh, the one that I didn't uh, mention, did anybody wash their hands this morning? Anybody take a shower? Okay, we got some hands. <laughs> uh, so we got one out, one out of four is not bad, um, right? But God's people are supposed to be called to be holy, and that starts with a pure heart, with, uh, with good works. We're, we're supposed to be actively different than the earth. Um, and we can take several weeks to study what those verses mean, but uh, it culminates here, and I think it explains it a little bit better, in verse 5. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. So who's giving here? Who's giving righteousness? The Lord, right? It's not that we're working towards righteousness. Surely the Lord empowers us, and there's good works to be done, um, and there's steps to be taken. First uh, John 3, 3 talks about those who understand the resurrection of Christ and see his purity, thus purifies themselves as he is pure, right? And so there surely are, are things and steps towards sanctification. But again, verse 5 brings us back to verses 1 and 2 of these things are from the Lord. Who could have a clean heart? Who could have good works or clean hands apart from a clean heart? Who can speak nothing but the truth all the time, right? We, uh, not I, um, right? So these things are a gift from the Lord. We're called to come back to him and receive those things, right? The Lord is such, uh, God is such that he loves to give us blessings. Ephesians 1.3 says that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. He is not withholding. He is not far. He is pouring out blessing continuously. Uh, he's pouring out righteousness. He is leading us in that. Uh, verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek God, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Um, and quick sidebar, one of the reasons why a lot of the Western church tends towards this moralistic, therapeutic deism is because we just don't read that much scripture and we don't understand it. And so you get little glimpses in the Old Testament uh, of what is uh, just a foreshadowing or just literally a shadow of the substance in Christ that is uh, in the New Covenant in, in the New Testament. And so um, who can, in Old Testament Jewish uh, law, uh, there was a priest. There was a high priest who can go in to the temple who had three layers, to the holies of holies, to actually uh, commune with God in a, a way more personal way um, and offer sacrifices and different things uh, once a year. And then the second layer, a uh, priest would go in daily and offer sacrifices and stuff. Uh, but it was always priests. It was always these people um, who were... Uh, through a certain lineage, so if there was 12 tribes of Israel, if you were from one of the other 11, you can't be a priest. Sorry, you just weren't born for it. Uh, and it was almost, uh, it'd be very easy to read that and be like, wow, this is some secret sect of society that is hierarchical where the priests are the highest class of people, right? Uh, they didn't have like real jobs. They got paid by <laughs> uh, the people, the other 11 tribes and and such. Um, and so it would be easy to read that. But then if you were just to look in Psalm 23, 
the last verse, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How could David say that? He's not a priest. He can't dwell in the house of the Lord. He can't live there. He can't offer sacrifices. He can't go in. Uh, he's, not, um, he's not a son of Aaron, right? Um, the same thing in uh, another Psalm of David, Psalm 27, right? Verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And so you see, especially in these Psalms of David, he's talking about dwelling in a place where on a cursory reading of the Old Testament, he's not allowed to go. So he's talking about something much different and deeper, right? And so uh, verse 6 brings that out a little bit. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. It's from generation to generation. It's not a certain time group. It's not a certain people group. It's just a generation of people. These aren't, he's not just merely talking about the priest who will receive blessing and be the special people and all these things. It's anybody who comes close to the Lord, who wants to dwell in his house, uh, who seek the face, who seek the closeness, right? Face to face is a personal thing. And so... David brings that out in the Psalms. Uh, Hosea 6.6 6 brings this out, where if you're reading through the Old Testament, like we said, it's very easy to think of just in terms of sacrifice and priest and doing these things. But in Hosea, it brings out that he says, like, I don't desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. Uh, these are the things that I desire. Uh, is it Psalm 51 that talks about, uh, I have not desired sacrifice, but, uh, but mercy. And so um, it's the, the people who the Lord is giving righteousness and pouring out blessing who are going to commune with him. And then we get this little break in Selah, and then we lift up. And so this is a little break in the psalm where there's like a, a lull, a dead point, and there's a totally different shift. Um, Paul does this a couple times in his writings, like in Romans 11, where he's talking about the, uh, the glory of the Lord and how awesome he is uh, and his awesome sovereign plan. And then he just like, goes into this praise break in, in, in his writing of like who can compare and, and just starts praising. And so this is a clear shift in the psalm that is leading us into worship, right? So um, we think in this in uh, theological terms, but... Uh, but think about this singing as a song. We, I think I experienced this every Sunday. Where I'm like, okay, it's time to sing. And I had to get my kids together. And I had to think about all these things. And we start singing and we get through one song. And I'm like, oh, I didn't really feel that one because uh, I was thinking about all these things. But uh, this song is leading us into worship, which is a song in itself. So the song is, sing- is singing about God's character so that we can get ready for worship, even though we're already worshiping. Does that make sense? <laughs> Uh, I think it's easier just to say, I think we've all experienced that, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, so it breaks into this praise, which is one of my, this is my favorite part of the psalm. Uh, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? 
the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so we have this little song at the end of the song that talks about how the King of glory is coming in. He's coming in through gates. The gates have heads. Who has heads? People have heads. <laughs> Good deduction there. Uh, right? It's, it's us who are bringing in the king of glory through our worship. Right? Psalm 100? Yeah, that's a good one on it. Of, and enter into his gates with praise and thanksgiving. We are bringing in, in a real sense, more of Christ's power, more of Christ's presence, um, and his kingdom through, and, his, and particularly his glory, through singing, through us. He intends to impart his glory through people, right? One of the things, um, again, that we uh, know through New Testament writings about the Old Testament is that uh, the Hebrew scriptures and those accounts of, of God delivering his people through Moses in the wilderness, uh, from Egypt into the wilderness with mighty signs and wonders, are given to us as an example, right? And so many of the Psalms we see sing and directly point to these things that happened that God did in the past that we see in the scriptures. And uh, we're called to think about those things. And, but one of the things that we often uh, make too much of a jump towards is that we think that God's just going to open up the skies and lightning bolts are going to crash down and that's how he's going to reveal his glory. He says, you're the gates. You're the ancient doors. Uh, one translation for ancient doors says the doors to the world. And so it's through us, it's through our worship that God actually bestows glory on us. Right? Um, Jesus in John 17, actually when he's praying in his high priestly prayer, says the glory that you, speaking to the Father, the glory that the Father has given to me, I have given to them. And so the Lord's actually bestowing glory on us, the King of glory, who has all power and majesty, who created all things, who can do with whatever as he pleases, is actually bestowing glory on us. That's a much more wonderful uh, and seemingly powerful thing. Um, but we're the ones that allow the king to come in. We're the ones that usher him in. And who is the king of glory? Verse 9. Or I'm sorry, verse 8. Uh, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That should remind us of all the things that the Lord has done in the past. All the battles that he's won. Uh, I think it's Judges 18 or 20 or something uh, where uh, the, the people of God, the Israelites, are bringing in and the Lord actually delivers them in the midst of a battle through praise, through worship, right? And we get back to uh, lift up your heads, O gates. We've got a re uh, vocalization, a repeating of it. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He's saying this again, making a point. We're the gates. We're going to usher in God's kingdom. We're gonna, God's going to get more glory through his people praising and singing and, and entering him in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Uh, he is the king of glory. And so the psalmist is making not just that he's uh, the creator, he's created everything, he's sovereign, but he's actually dealing with a people who would seek him, who would seek righteousness, who would want to be close to him and receive his righteousness, receive his blessing, 
These are the people, just like we're supposed to think about Israel and Jacob, uh, Israel the person, um, how he wrestled with God, how he, uh, he, how he struggled with him, how that nearness was. He said, I'm not going to leave until you bless me. And then the Lord gave him a bunch of money. No, that didn't happen. He didn't get a bunch of money. He got punched in the hip and he, and he uh, uh, broke, his, broke his sinew and he walked with a limp his whole life, right? There's a humility that's bestowed or there's a, a glory that's bestowed on humility uh, and lowliness, right? Uh, God bestowed a glory on, on Jacob to be the father of a nation, um, and, and to do many things through God, and he didn't bless him with all this money and prosperity and things that we would think and want. He gave him a limp. He made him more humble, right? And so the Lord actually bestows more glory on the more humble. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's not what I look like when I look at our political systems, our governments, I think those who with the most power, the most money, the most influence will inherit the earth. But somehow Christianity is still overtaking the whole globe at a rapid rate. Uh, how is that so? There's hardly any Christian governments out there. Um, we're not taking it by force. We're bringing in the king of glory through worship, through praise, through humility, through seeking him. And so that's what he's called us here to do this morning, is we're actually going to usher in the king of glory as we sing, as we worship him. He's going to be here. He's going to work mightily through us. He's going to bestow glory on us the more meek and humble we are towards him. And we might not uh, think that in the same way, or he might not deliver that in the same way uh, that we want. But that's what we're here to do. And that's what we're going to do uh, as we worship. So praise the Lord. Amen. Amen.